Setting records statewide as early voting gets underway across Texas. Meanwhile, President Trump turns up the volume on immigration. Those stories today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown at a rally in Houston. The president ratchets up the rhetoric as a migrant caravan from Central America makes its way through Mexico to the U.S. border. Watch what you wear before you head out to the polls. Why that favorite shirt or cap could land you in trouble with the local constabulary. Also, Tornado Alley winding its way eastward. Climate experts track a surprising long-term weather pattern. All those stories and a whole lot more on the Tuesday edition of the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, could you believe those lines at the polling places yesterday? Yes, it's Texas Standard Time on this October 23rd. I'm David Brown. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your Tuesday with us. Now let's do the numbers. More than 63,000, that's the number of in-person votes cast in Harris County alone yesterday as early voting got underway across the Lone Star State. How does that compare with the last midterm? Well, it's more than three times the number, shattering all records. In Bear County, more than 24,000 casting early votes on day one. That compares to 13,000 in 2014. In Austin, in-person and mail-ins on day one totaled more than 47,000 compared with 17,000 in the previous midterms. Even places like Midland saw a 350% increase in voting on day one of this midterm cycle with lines snaking down the hallway at the city's main election office. All these numbers reported by the Texas Tribune. By the way, while we're talking numbers, 18,000 jammed the Toyota Center in Houston with hundreds more outside watching big screen monitors as President Trump staged a rally in support of his one-time presidential opponent Ted Cruz and other Republican candidates. Especially noteworthy in his red meat speech to Red State Faithful, what the New York Times called a sharp intensification of a campaign to frame the election season as a referendum on immigration. The president making specific reference to a caravan of what is now estimated to be 7,000 strong from Central America moving through Mexico en route to the U.S. border. The president calling the march, quoting here, an assault on our country, adding... Quote, in that caravan you have some very bad people, close quote, echoes of his bad hombres line from campaign 2016. Let's turn our attention now to what's actually happening on the ground. Rodrigo Cervantes is in Mexico City, where he's bureau chief for Public Radio's KJZZ. Rodrigo, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thank you very much for the invitation. How's this migrant march being covered in the Mexican media? It is definitely one of the most important topics right now in Mexican media. You can hear stories from uh, the new administration, but also from the current administration. And you can also hear a lot of uh, human stories on how the people, uh, particularly in the southern state of Chiapas, are helping the migrant caravan and are trying to support them on their way to the United States. Outgoing President Peña Nieto has said that uh, Central American migrants should not be allowed to come in without documentation. But his administration, of course, is just weeks from handing over the reins to the López Obrador administration. What's the incoming president having to say about all this? It's very interesting to to see the reactions, not only in this topic, but in general. Uh, it seems that the country has become uh, bicephalous in many ways. And just to give you an example, in this particular topic with the immigrant caravan, 
So while President Peña Nieto is encouraging Central Americans to follow the legal procedure in Mexico uh, to register as uh, transitory migrants or as refugees, uh, President-elect Andrés Manuel López Obrador is encouraging the community and the society in Mexico to protect the uh, Central Americans that are in Mexico at this point. So uh, it's not really that the opinions are divided. It just seems that it's a different spectrum. And uh, while this transition happens, we're also seeing how uh, Mexicans are adapting to a new administration and a new reality. Well, there, there are reports that uh, many Mexican citizens are expressing some frustration with Mexican military and police forces, as, as uh, I've heard it quoted, uh, becoming an arm of President Trump's immigration policy. What are you hearing and could you explain that? There is definitely uh, a lot of groups criticizing the current administration and how they reacted to the arrival of Central Americans. Basically, a lot of uh, civil organizations are criticizing the Mexican government for trying to reinforce the security on the border, which uh, at the end of the day was surpassed by the caravan. And for many, this is a result of the current negotiations with the American administration trying to to hold and trying to keep the caravan uh, out of the country. However, the Mexican uh, law allows Central Americans or uh, immigrants in general to registrate as transitory uh, migrants traveling to the United States or even ask for a refugee status. So that is the reason why we're seeing that the Peña Nieto administration, while trying to reinforce uh, the southern border, which uh, has uh, made him the focus of, of critics saying that he might be following uh, the Trump administration's instructions, on the other hand, they have to follow the legal procedure uh, according to the uh, current uh, Mexican laws. We're almost out of time, but President Trump has threatened to call up the U.S. military if this caravan actually reaches the U.S.-Mexico border. Is this election season bluster? How ugly could this get? You know, I, it's interesting because I actually talked to uh, some activists here in Mexico City, and part of the concern that they have is that the caravan might arrive to the uh, border to, with the United States, and they might face a very similar situation that uh, other other immigrant groups are facing. And specifically, we can think of the Haitians. They get their request for uh, refugee status in the United States denied, but they apply to that same status in Mexico. What happens is that they end up staying in border towns in Mexico, and this is increasing the population in these areas. We're talking about thousands of people that might just like suddenly arrive to these border towns. And there is no specific plan yet from the Mexican authorities on what they're going to do. Rodrigo Cervantes is based in Mexico City as bureau chief for public radio station KJZZ out of Phoenix. Rodrigo, thanks so much for the update. And thank you very much for having me. For those of you not among the teeming throngs casting ballots on the first day of early voting, any questions before you head to the polls? Texas Standard and public radio stations across the Lone Star State have been working together to help you make sense of the midterms through our Texas Decides project, inviting listeners to send in their questions, and all this week we're answering them. Bonnie Petrie of Texas Public Radio in San Antonio takes it from here. Our question asker is Patsy Culver, CPA. But I'm also an artist, which are not two things that usually go together. I live in Alpine, Texas, uh, and I'm born and bred in Texas. And Patsy's wondering about law and order. My question is, Texas is fairly unique in that we elect our judges. 
I have not found anywhere uh, that I can find the positions on the judges that are running this year. Okay, so this shouldn't be too hard. I'm a reporter. I have Google. (laughs) There are more than 3,000 elected judges in Texas. Texas is one of just six states that pick members of their Supreme Court this way. Huh. One of just six that pick appellate court justices this way. And one of nine states that lets voters pick district court judges. Why do we do this? Well, it goes back in history. This system was set up before the Civil War and then reintroduced after the Civil War. It has not been modified seriously since 1891. So to an extent, we're still in horse and buggy days. St. Mary's School of Law professor Wayne Scott says this system was fine in horse and buggy days when most people lived in small towns and everyone knew everyone. Then when you voted for a judge, you knew who you were voting for and what you were getting. As we become an urbanized society, that's changed. And it's more difficult now to know who you're voting for or who's running for which office. Well, I wonder how judges feel about this whole setup. I guess I'll have to ask one. How about Judge Sandy Marion? I currently serve as the Chief Justice of the Fourth Court of Appeals in San Antonio, Texas. She's been a judge for 26 years, and she's had to run for this office several times. For myself, it was um, very difficult to campaign for office because you have to raise money, you have to ask people for money, you have to really tout yourself. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable doing those things. And you have to pick a party. But once you get elected, you really have to take that political hat off. And it's it's not always easy for everyone to do. When Judge Marion runs, she knows it's difficult for voters to learn about her. So you have to get the word out through commercials. I always feel like mail outs are good and appropriate. But again, that's just your side of the story, right? So she says you can't only rely on a candidate's promotional material or yard signs. If you're voting simply because you saw that sign or you saw that one candidate had more signs than the other, that is absolutely no indication of the qualifications of that individual for the bench. Now, for years, our questioner, Patsy, had been getting intel on candidates for judge through the grapevine. I would ask people who I knew in the legal profession who they would recommend. And what do our experts agree is a great way to learn about candidates for judge? Calling a lawyer or your lawyer and asking them to tell you about that judge. Lawyers know who's a good judge or who's a good candidate for judge. So there's really no easy shortcut here. You have to do the work to learn about the judges you'll be voting for. And Judge Marion hopes you will. It's such an important role that the judiciary plays in our system. And I just hope that voters will take the time to learn about them. Educating yourself is the most important thing that you can do to ensure that we have a strong judicial system. For the Texas Standard, I'm Bonnie Petrie in San Antonio. And if you do want to get started researching the judges that will be on your ballots, you can check out our interactive voter guide at texasdecides.org.
That signal means our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, is back in the house. Uh, what are Texans talking about on this Tuesday? Well, I got to say, early voting still front and center on social media. Folks have their minds on the midterms and the midterms on their minds, as evidenced by the tweets we are receiving. Chris Hammock says it's the second day of early voting and there's still a line before the polls open here in Fort Worth. Send a photo along as well. Love to get pictures of yes. all this stuff from our Send listeners. pictures. Rotenam tweets us that the voting line in South Austin is as long yesterday as it was at the same as, as long today as it was at the same time yesterday wow. and our pal kj tweets us that they thought it was just first day excitement well apparently not and you know david i just doubled down on what you said as for those folks who have not voted yet uh-huh. we do have that handy dandy nonpartisan voting guide personalized down to your district it's there available at texasdecides.org yes, or we've is. also got a link to it up at our own website texasstandard.org yeah so speaking of yeah, politics nice. you know david uh mm-hmm. some reaction out there to the trump rally in houston last night as well that was right. a little bit of a stim winder from the president it there. certainly was i mean ted cruz gave one of the uh, one yeah. of the most rousing speeches i think i've ever heard uh, rousing of course for the uh republican faithful we'd love to know what you think if you happen to tune in or down there at the the toyota center uh, watching it firsthand tweet us won't you at texas standard wells dunbar is looking for you he'll be back in 35 with more of the talk of texas Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Happy Tuesday to you. It's a Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Dallas County Schools, not to be confused with Dallas ISD, was a rather obscure public agency that provided bus service to school districts around the region. Well, now the defunct school bus agency is in the crosshairs of a federal corruption investigation, one which has taken down a fifth public official. Estela Chavez of KERA North Texas tells us this time it's a guilty plea on tax evasion charges. Federal officials say Larry Duncan accepted nearly a quarter of a million dollars in campaign contributions over several years. The money came from a company called Force Multiplier Solutions. The tech company was doing business with Dallas County Schools, putting cameras on school buses. Aaron Neely Cox, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Texas, says Duncan wasn't using the contributions for campaign expenses. Mr. Duncan admits he used the money for personal gain essentially treating his campaign account like his own personal bank account. Neely Cox said Duncan, who served eight years on the Dallas City Council, did not report the money to the IRS. He took out cash withdrawals, passed on money to his wife, even used funds for car-related expenses. Duncan faces up to a year in federal prison and has agreed to reimburse the government for the taxes he didn't pay, nearly $40,000 plus interest. Duncan's the fifth person to be indicted in the bus agency bribery scandal. Again, Neely Cox. It's especially troubling when someone, once entrusted with the public's office, tries to pervert that system and leaves the citizens of Dallas to clean up the damage. In August, Force Multiplier Solutions President Robert Leonard and former Dallas Mayor Pro Tem Dwayne Carraway pleaded guilty to federal corruption charges. Investigators say Leonard gave more than $3 million in bribes to Carraway and Ricky Sorrells, the former Dallas County Schools superintendent. In April, Sorrells pleaded guilty. Last fall, voters decided to abolish the bus agency. In Dallas, I'm Stella Chavez for the Texas Standard.
Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. It's expected that young people could make a big impact in these midterms, and we should start hearing about some serious patterns now that early voting is underway. There's long been talk of rocking the vote, but careful there, that T-shirt you're rocking could get you in trouble. Ditto that red hat, depending on what it says up front there. Brianna Stone of the Dallas Morning News has been reporting on this subject. Welcome to the Texas Standard, Brianna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So what we're talking about is how one, uh, well, literally what one wears to the the polling stations. I've seen a lot of Beto t-shirts, uh, certainly during this election cycle. Uh, can you wear that to a polling station? So most people may not know this, but it is actually illegal in Texas to wear any type of apparel, whether that's a t-shirt, a hat, or a button to go vote. So you definitely don't want to wear your Ted Cruz or your Beto or any type of political t-shirts to go vote. Okay. It's not just that you can't wear a t-shirt. Surely you can wear a t-shirt. It's that if it has a, what is it, an explicit endorsement for a candidate or any political message. I, can, I mean, what if you have, like, say, an elephant on your T-shirt, for example? Is that, uh, is that a red flag? So the term that the state uses is electioneering, and that's anything that caters to a campaign, a political party, or a candidate. So just to play it safe, you should probably avoid anything that is elephant or donkey or anything that could possibly be interpreted as catering to a specific party. I suppose this would include one of those red MAGA hats, too, one of those uh, Make America Great Again hats. You you wouldn't, wouldn't want to wear that to the polling place because what would they do exactly? Would they turn you away? Could you get arrested? Would they uh, tip the hat right off your head? What, what exactly is the penalty here? Yes, so you definitely don't want to wear a MAGA hat, and it's up to the voting judge or the clerk whether they will tell you to simply leave or take it off. If you're wearing a t-shirt that has a political message, they might ask you to turn it inside out, and it is punishable by a misdemeanor, so it is against Texas law. And something else that you're not allowed to do when you go vote is be on your cell phone, and that means no taking selfies of your ballot or texting or anything while you're at the polling location. Now, this you mentioned is a misdemeanor. Would anyone get arrested for this, or is this something that you might just get a citation for? How does that work? So when I spoke with the Texas Secretary of State, they didn't mention that anyone would get arrested, but since it is against the law, it is a possibility that you could. It just depends on whether or not you cooperate with the voting judge or clerk. So if they ask you to take off your hat or turn your shirt inside out and you don't comply, then it is up to them whether they want to call law enforcement. It's it's interesting because you, you think about, like, for instance, I know there's supermarkets, for example, that participate in the early voting process in some counties, certainly in Travis County. I've, I've seen that around. Uh, I know that, you know, someone who might go shopping, for example, might pass by the red cones, which are supposed to be where the electioneering stops. If you're walking around in the grocery store and you happen to be wearing a political shirt, can that get you in trouble or do you have to be actively standing in line or how, what are the lines here? 
So that is a great question. And according to the law, you're not allowed to do any of this within the hundred feet of a polling place. So if it is in a grocery store and you are shopping there, then it is a possibility that you could be violating this law. So um, I think it would just be best to play it safe and probably avoid wearing anything that could possibly get you in trouble. Even when you're just going shopping. So is this a, how much of this is a Texas thing or is this something that you see elsewhere? So there are some other states that prohibit things like taking ballot selfies and using your cell phones. Um, it's not illegal everywhere, but there are different um, laws depending on what state you live in. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I suppose I should also ask this while we're talking about these laws that people may not completely uh, know about. Uh, when can you start talking about who you voted for, who you didn't vote for? Is that is that? I mean, I presume that that's verboten while you're standing in line. That that is that right? So in Texas, you are not allowed to while you're at a polling place or within 100 feet, tell other people how you're going to vote, whether that's verbally, by sign, or showing them a piece of paper, writing down who you're going to vote for, showing someone. Uh You're also not allowed to tell other people how others are voting. So it would probably be safe just to not talk about who you voted for until you're well outside of the polling area. (laughs) Watch out. Brianna Stone of the (laughs) Dallas Morning News is covering this story. We'll link to her piece at texasstandard.org. Brianna, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on The Standard. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, the Royal Theater in Archer City may be the most iconic of those Main Street Texas theaters, thanks to Peter Bogdanovich, featuring it prominently in his film version of McMurtry's The Last Picture Show. But the most beautifully designed theater in Texas, the folks at Architectural Digest have decided to weigh in, and it's Texarkana for the win. The city's historic Perot Theater joins a lineup of dozens of other venues on the Digest's list of most beautifully designed theaters in the U.S. The Perot opened in 1924. These days, Texarkana Symphony Orchestra calls it home. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Five students at Prairie View A&M University are suing Waller County over allegations officials are suppressing the voting rights of black residents. The Texas Tribune reports the students at the historically black university are accusing the county of violating federal law because they are not providing a polling site on campus or in the city of Prairie View during the first week of early voting. Early voting started yesterday and runs through November 2nd. Day is November 6. About 18,000 people gathered in the Toyota Center in Houston last night for President Donald Trump's rally for Texas Republicans. Trump had high praise for his one-time political rival, GOP incumbent Senator Ted Cruz. Nobody has helped me more with your tax cuts, with your regulation, with all of the things that we're doing, including military and our vets. Cruz is in the midst of a competitive race with Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke. 
A Mexican journalist will learn whether he will be granted asylum in the United States early next year. He's been seeking it for a decade. Emilio Gutierrez Soto appeared before an immigration judge in El Paso Monday. His case gained national attention after federal officers in West Texas detained him and his son for months after a routine immigration check-in. They were released this past July. I caught up with Gutierrez as he stood outside of an El Paso courthouse. He says he can never return to Mexico where he faces death threats for his reporting on government corruption. Gutierrez says he wonders whose actions would put him in more danger, the actions of the people surrendering him to Mexican authorities or the actions of those people waiting for him in Mexico. Gutierrez is currently a recipient of the prestigious Knight Wallace Journalism Fellowship at the University of Michigan. He traveled from Ann Arbor to Texas for yesterday's hearing. Another fellow, Luis Treas, also made the trip in support of Gutierrez. Treas works for the NPR podcast Radio Ambulante. What can I say? We appreciate him and we want him here and we want him to be safe. Kathy Kylie is with the National Press Club Journalism Institute, which has long been advocating for Gutierrez. She also traveled to El Paso and says she's concerned about how long the legal process is taking. And the fact that these strange things keep happening to delay justice for Emilio only makes it harder for me to get out of my mind the suspicion that he is being he is a victim of prejudice prejudice against Mexicans and prejudice against journalists. The judge hearing the case previously denied Gutierrez asylum but has been forced to rehear it by the Board of Immigration Appeals, part of the U.S. Justice Department. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Clough and Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. If you grew up in Texas, you were likely taught at a young age about Tornado Alley. But could Texas, and the Great Plains for that matter, no longer be the epicenter of the country's tornadic activity? This is a question some climate scientists are studying as they see an increase in that tornadic activity in the eastern U.S. Victor Gensini is one of those scientists. He's a professor at Northern Illinois University who specializes in extreme weather and climate change. Professor Gensini, uh, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us on the Texas Standard. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I understand uh, you were uh, one of the brains behind this study published in the latest Journal of Climate and Atmospheric Science, suggesting a, a shift in where tornadoes are happening in the U.S.? Yeah, that's exactly right. And to be honest, we were a little surprised when we started digging through these tornado records. Uh, as you mentioned at the start, there are many states people think of as Tornado Alley, right? Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas among those. Mm -hmm. And they still are the epicenter of tornado activity. The frequencies of tornadoes are still highest in those states. But what we've noticed over the last 40 years is that there's been a downward trend in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas in, in terms of the number of tornadoes that have occurred mm -hmm. and, a, and a very sharp increasing trend in places like Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and portions of the Midwest. Now, it's not uncommon if you live in Alabama or Georgia or any place uh, uh, a little further east of Texas to, uh, to have a season of tornadoes, especially in the spring and, and early summer. Uh, I, I grew up in Georgia and we used to have our share of those. When we talk about an increase in that area, how big of an increase? You're really only talking maybe three to four tornadoes per decade. So it's not like a 
big increase in any one of these small little boxes that we examined in our study. Mm -hmm. But even three to four tornadoes, you know, in a, say, 100 kilometer by 100 kilometer box is still a pretty significant sharp increase when you look at the grand scheme of things. So it equates really to about a 20 to 25 percent increase in any given region wow. or state. Wow, that, that, that does sound uh, significant. So how has your team been tracking this? Well, there's kind of two ways. So the first way is to track where tornadoes occur. And that's fairly straightforward. And I say fairly straightforward because if you go back through the historical record, when tornadoes cause damage, right, new studies occur. And when you have newspaper reports and so on, you can go back and, and get a pretty good idea of the activity. But what we've seen really over the last 20 years or so is that more tornadoes are being reported. Right? More people have cell phones. There's a lot more storm chasers. Mm -hmm. We have better technology like right. Doppler radar. And so very rare for any of these tornadoes to go unreported nowadays. So we used reports right, with that kind of caveat that we knew that there's some increasing trend. But then we also examined what are called tornado environments or this, this parameter in the paper we call significant tornado parameter. And you can sort of think of that as a tornado watch. So when the conditions are favorable for tornadoes, we capture that outside of the model. We bring that in and analyze how those environments have been uh, changing as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a working model or a theory as to why this shift may be happening. Well, that's a great question. And we kind of leave that in the paper as sort of open science, something that needs to be examined further. We kind of postulate two potential things. So number one would be natural variability. In other words, this is just kind of a quiet 40, 30, 40 year period that we're moving into for the Great Plains, and it'll come back. Mm -hmm. The second would be, um, this is a, a significant shift that's been induced by humans through anthropogenic climate change. In other words, portions of Texas and Oklahoma are kind of drying out. And that's very consistent with what we would see in some of the climate model projections of what would happen in the next 30, 40 years if we continue on the, the uh, what's called basically the business as usual emission scenario in regards to carbon dioxide. So if that were to occur and more higher temperatures in the southern plains and more drying out, then we would definitely, you know, postulate then this, this eastward shift in tornado alley. Since we're already seeing that eastward shift, um, in regards to uh, changing climate, we think that there is probably a climate change scenario uh, component playing out here, but we're simply not able to say definitively one way or the other what, what this is that we're seeing. So those of you living in Tornado Alley, don't stand down just yet. Uh, the Absolutely science, not. Science no, is if you live developed. in Texas or Oklahoma, you should still every year plan for your you know, tornado season, quote unquote. But even then, I don't really like saying season because we know tornadoes can happen any time of the year. In fact, they're quite commonplace in places like Texas and Oklahoma in the months of November through February. Yeah. So we can never really let our guard down just because we're seeing trends on a very large climate scale. Victor Gensini is a professor in the Department of Geographic and Atmosphere sciences at Northern Illinois University. He's been studying a growing shift in tornadic activity, shifting toward the eastern U.S. Professor Gensini, thanks again. Thank you for having me. You know, I discovered something interesting the other day, back before there were proper weather radios picking up the National Weather Service, that sort of thing. There used to be this radio that was manufactured in the Alamo City. I think it was called the Alamo City Radio. And, 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 and what it did was it picked up uh, weather uh, from just the, the radio waves that might indicate that there was a tornado in the area. It's an incredible thing. I'll have to talk about it a little bit later.
Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Next week, kids will don makeup and masks and make the rounds in their neighborhoods with buckets and bags open wide. In an era when neighbors don't often get to know one another, one byproduct of Halloween is an opportunity to get out and meet the folks who live next door and around the corner. And that's the context for today's edition of our Heel to Toe Project, in which Texans share stories about their boots. My name is Paul Lester. I live in Houston. Uh, I'm a retired banker and lawyer. And my boot story dates back to my growing up years in Austin in the late 1940s. We had a neighbor whose grandfather, it turned out, was a well-known cowboy bootmaker. And this uh, tale is about my first encounter with him. In the late 1940s, uh, my father took my older sister and me trick-or-treating. It was my first time out on that mission. I think I was about five. It was a very cold Halloween night. We went up and down the street, calling on all the houses, until finally we came to the last house, which belonged to Tommy Dunn, uh, who was a boy about 10 years old, and his parents. By this time, after 10 or 12 houses, I'd gotten the hang of the trick-or-treat routine, and I was full of confidence. We yelled trick-or-treat. Tommy's grandpa, Mr. Dunn, came to the door. He took a stern look at us, and he said, just a minute, I'm going to go get my gun. Well, I dropped my bag and ran to the curb where my father was waiting. He told me Mr. Dunn was just kidding, but I didn't buy it. Luckily, my sister, who was three years older and had a lot more street smarts than I had, stayed behind on the porch waiting. And finally, Mr. Dunn returned to the door. To me, he was surprisingly still unarmed. And he put some candy in both bags my sister held out to him, uh, her own and mine. Tommy Dunn was about 10 years old, as I mentioned. One time he gave my sister Edith and me some leather cutouts that his grandpa had made for him. There were greens and uh, browns. Well, I remember bright red because that was always my favorite color, fire engine red. But the the pieces were cut in the shapes of little animals and flowers and cactus. My sister and I traded them among ourselves. Uh, You know, if I had an extra leaf or an extra bullhead or whatever it was that she needed, we'd trade them. They were very nice little cutouts, you know, kind of whimsical. I lived out of state for many years as an adult, but when I finally moved back to Texas, uh, somehow I heard about these quality cowboy boots made by Tommy's grandpa, the the legendary Charlie Dunn. Charlie Dunn, from what what I've heard about him since, what I've learned about him, him and his life, I'm confident now I would accept candy from him without any hesitation. And as for his famous boots, I'd love to own a pair, especially if uh, they were a pair adorned with those leather cutouts of, of animals and flowers and cactus. 
voice of Paul Lester from Houston. Hey, if you have a story about your boots, scary or otherwise, let us know. Email us, texasstandard at kut.org. Well, he's on the cover of Texas Music Magazine right now, but he's been making a mark internationally, too. R&B singer Leon Bridges burst into the spotlight in 2015 with a voice like Sam Cooke, a retro look, and an old-school sound. But as Hadi Mawagdi of KERA North Texas discovered, it's a sound fine-tuned in a Fort Worth studio, one which has been putting a lot of artists on the map. Nile City Sound is an old-fashioned recording studio located inside of a 100-year-old warehouse just south of downtown Fort Worth. The studio is only four years old, but it already has a dated look. Beige walls, wood paneling in the control room, and tons of vintage analog music equipment. I'm always going, so whenever you guys are comfortable. You gonna go again? That's Josh Block, one of the studio's founders. He's working with a band from Austin called The Tender Things. They want a record that sounds like it came from Sun Studios. Black's an audio junkie. He collected a lot of the studio's rare recording gear, like the Grateful Dead's reel-to-reel tape recorder and the mixing console from Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. Most of the studio's gear was made during the 1940s with more costly materials like steel and copper. Black says that's why they produce a richer, warmer sound than today's digital recording. What we use now is nowhere near as amazing. If we could go back in time, hear that while it was recorded to that medium and be in that sound booth while we're listening to playback is better. Block's partners are Austin Jenkins and Chris Vivian. Block and Jenkins spent years touring the country and playing in the band White Denim. Vivian was their tour manager. Then the three quit and moved home to North Texas. Soon they were talking about starting a studio. I'll let Jenkins and Block explain. Jenkins speaks first. We basically had this idea uh, that I still think could be cool, where, where people come in and play their tunes, but we sort of force them to play them to an old school tape machine and not uh, in any kind of way that they're used to. Yeah, we wanted to do like a live to radio studio. But as you're putting something like that together, it's really possible that you get sidetracked with something else. So being a production studio is what we got sidetracked with, luckily. So lucky. The radio studio didn't work, but they had this vision of recording musicians live to tape, and that was something. While we were putting that together, we met Leon and decided that we should just do a record for him, and he was going to let us do it that type of way because that was something at the time we were really excited about. Baby, 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 I'm coming home. Yeah, that Leon. Leon Bridges. The results were better than they'd imagined. The album Coming Home was nominated for a Grammy. The studio ended up with a gold record. But Bridges is hardly their only client. Jason Burt is one half of the popular Dallas duo Medicine Man Revival, and he admires Jenkins' approach. You know, we came into his studio, it was his house, and and he let us make the coffee every once in a while. You know, it was, it was cool. It was really sweet, actually. Fort Worth singer-songwriter Grady Spencer made a single with the studio, then came back and made an album. 
they have like really great ideas about how to make a song sound the best it can. You know, they were really encouraging and it was just really relaxed, uh, just a really fun time um, recording with those guys. Now the group says they want to do the same for other artists in the region. There's stories to be told in Dallas and in Denton as well. And if we can just put a spotlight on this area, it's such a great thing for everybody. They're working with Visit Fort Worth on a contest. Four acts will win an opportunity to record a single at Nile City Sound. And maybe they'll find the next Leon Bridges. All night long I was out, out to the morning. Reporting from KERA North Texas, I'm Hadi Mawagdi for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The number of juvenile offenders sent to prison is going down statewide, but not everywhere. The Houston Chronicle reports that there are some conspicuous exceptions to this trend, notably two Harris County judges who accounted for more than one-fifth of all children sent to the state's juvenile prisons last year. Carrie Blakinger wrote about this exclusively for the Houston Chronicle, where she covers prisons and the death penalty. Carrie, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Hi, thanks for having me again. Why this anomaly? Is there something that kids are getting involved with in Harris County that's not happening elsewhere in the state, or what explains this? Well, there there has been an increase in uh, in aggravated robberies with kids around here, and there has been some increase in the number of kids that are appearing in these courts that have charges that would make them eligible for TJJD, for the state juvenile facilities. But that uh, those changes only explain part of the increase that we're seeing um, because there's also some striking differences between the three courts. We have three uh, juvenile criminal judges here in Harris County, mm-hmm. and two of them are sending kids to TJJD at much higher numbers than the third judge. So uh, when how much of the state juvenile detention population do Harris County offenders occupy, and, and how are these two judges uh, responsible here? Well, so last year it was around 25% of the kids in TJ, that were sent to TJJD came out of Harris County, and by contrast, Harris County has somewhere around 15% of the state's population. Wow. So that is, that is still out of line for what we would expect, even though Harris County is a bigger county and, you know, we might expect to see more crime here as well. Um, so the two judges are um, Judge Glenn Devlin and Judge John Phillips. Um, and there's, there's no reason to believe that they're seeing any sort of different type of caseload. Cases are, for the most part, randomly assigned. Um, they're seeing a roughly equal numbers of uh, kids charged with TJJD eligible offenses. Um, You know, one of the things that it appears that it comes down to is judicial discretion. So how were you able to find this out? Was it, did someone flag you that this was happening or were you just doing the numbers and all of a sudden you noticed something anomalous? Well, somebody slipped me a grievance that was filed against one of the judges and 
in, I don't know, near the top of that grievance, there was a reference to racial disparities. And I was intrigued by that. And so I, I went searching for data and I put in many records requests to TJJD and probably drove them crazy with that. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another and I realized that it wasn't just the racial disparities. There was also, you know, a disproportionate number of kids uh, that were coming out of Harris County. You haven't. I mean, we, it, it increased, and it, it had increased. Is you know another important point. It's doubled uh, over the past four years. The number of kids coming out of Harris County. It's doubled over the past four years. Well, yes. we, you know, you mentioned that racial component. We haven't really touched on that here in this conversation, but this too is striking. Ninety-six percent of those offenders who have been sent to uh, to uh, these um, juvenile prisons, uh, effectively, are children of color. What are some of the factors that seem to be contributing to that? Well, one of the things is that, you know, the demographics of Harris County, that, that definitely plays a part of it. Um, and also, obviously, it's about policing and, you know, where policing is occurring and, you know, who's getting charged. But also, once they actually appear in court and there needs to be a decision as to whether the kid's going to get probation or uh, detention or sent to TJJD, um one of the factors that judges tend to consider is how much supervision there is because kids more likely to be successful on probation if there's adequate parental supervision. And this is where we see um, some trickle down effect from mass incarceration with adults because with children of color, there's an increased likelihood that mom or dad might be in prison and thus unable to provide supervision. Kerry Blakinger is covering prisons and the death penalty for the Houston Chronicle. We're going to have a link to this story at texasstandard.org so you can check it out for yourself. Kerry, thanks again. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. All righty then, let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Tuesday. Social media editor Wells Dunbar is here. Hi, uh, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Doing all right, doing Good. all right. Here's a story, interesting one here. It's kind of flown under the radar, but people are still talking about it. Mm-hmm. The New York Times recently reported that Trump administration policies are effectively seeking to define the identity of transgender folks out of existence by having the Department of Health and Human Services hew to a strictly binary male or female definition of gender that is fixed at birth and apparently unchangeable. This change to gender definitions that the HHS makes that were loosened under the Obama administration, right. mm-hmm. uh, th- this would switch things back and would rely on birth certificates unless, as described in a draft Health and Human Services memo, unless they are rebutted by reliable genetic evidence. So yeah. obviously this proposal has some transgender Texans up in arms, but there's another tie to the state as well that's interesting. Among the legal rulings that the Trump administration is pointing to to justify this change, Judge Reed O'Connor from the Federal District Court in Fort Worth. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Times notes that he ruled biological sex is different from the concept of gender identity. Right. So using that ruling as, uh, as justification to proceed with these potential changes, all of this is just draft stuff. Nothing has been codified or right. changed in law yet. Mm-hmm. But still sparking a lot of conversation, Janice Hitchcock on our Facebook Facebook page says that this decision is petty and a major problem 
with our society. We allow categories, talking points, and memes to define how we see each other. Mm -hmm. As much as ultra-conservatives might want the president to wave a magic wand and make these people disappear, they will still exist, they will still be Americans, and they will still be just as much a part of our story as who we are as any of the rest of us. You know, I've I've been seeing commentary, and not Mm -hmm. from the usual places, uh, suggesting that... uh, uh, there are the legal dimensions yeah. of such a change could be rather profound and might cut in directions that uh, uh, some people on the left side of the spectrum uh, might uh, prove of. Uh, this is it's a, it's a, they're just interesting arguments that are being made around this as people once again reconsider what is obviously a red hot issue yeah. here in Texas, especially given uh, right. the position of Dan Patrick during yeah. the last legislative session when it came to uh, public access to bathrooms. Yeah, and what we've seen here in Texas, and you know another uh, interesting side note here about that judge, Judge O'Connor. He's the same judge. That hurt Texas' challenge to uh, the coverage of pre-existing conditions in mm-hmm. Obamacare back in September, mm-hmm. I believe, and has yet to issue a ruling. And lots of folks uh, I follow on Twitter are noting that and noting that uh, I think uh, not to get too into the weeds here, but I think Texas sought an injunctive ruling, uh, which is supposed to, you know, so, you know, we need relief from this, so give us this ruling quickly. Yet he still hasn't issued some uh, anything yet. So some folks are saying, could we brace ourselves for an October surprise uh, here with uh, Obamacare, well, or could know. something be held until after the midterm? Who knows uh, right. what's going forward with that? But another story that uh, people are keeping an eye on. You know, yeah. a, a story close to home. Uh, this just broke uh, recently. Travis County Emergency Management. Uh, they say that the Austin boil water notice mm-hmm. could go on for as many as 10 to 14 days Whoa. as the water tries to settle. That's, you know, nothing certain, nothing carved in stone here. But that's essentially what emergency services in Travis County are bracing for. And so the citizens should potentially brace for that as well. That's pretty remarkable. I know we're going to get more rain, and that will make, of course, uh, dealing with the uh, water situation more difficult. Well, we will certainly continue to monitor the situation and keep you posted. We're out of time for the big broadcast today, but we hope you'll join us again tomorrow. On behalf of Mr. Dunbar here and the rest of the crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Tuesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington Family. R.I. Public Radio International.